This is me on my holly bobs or uh, um, on holiday uh, in Luxor. Um, this extraordinary, um, so don't focus on the gooning idiot in the front, but uh, right at the back, this is the extraordinary temple of Hat Shep Sut. Um, it's the series of gigantic terraces. They sort of rise out of the sand and then sort of disappear into the back of these cliffs. They're extraordinary uh, uh, monument, uh, extraordinary uh, sort of enterprise of architecture. Hapshetsut was one of the a very few female uh, equal opportunities uh, lady kings of uh, Pharaoh um, of Egypt. Um, and there was, uh, like a lot of these guys, there was a uh, famous myth about their birth. And it's quite long, so I've kind of tried to distill it down uh, into something else. So basically, there's this queen, and she's got a husband, but, um, and it's sort of it's similar with the, like, the Greek and the Roman gods. The god comes down and pretends to be the husband. Um, and you're like, aye, aye, we know what happens next. Well, um, he comes in and he wakens her with a perfume, which sounds quite romantic. Um, and then suddenly waves under a nose. Um, I don't know whether you've seen it. It's like a, a, a cross with a, a sort of a circle at the top. And it's this Egyptian symbol of life. So he waves that under her nose and miraculously um, she uh, conceives. And, and, and she has in her womb Hatshepsut. And then um, after this god has done that, there's this goddess. And she leads this pregnant queen who's sort of uh, been inseminated through the nose and uh, brings her to the uh, den of a lioness and in this den of a lioness this queen gives birth to Hatshepsut and um, so th this is the story of Hatshepsut and how she was born um, and there's this goddess involved that leads this queen to the place where she gives birth and if I've got my ducks in a row, uh, this is a picture. So you can see um, this thing in the middle that looks a little bit like a cross. Um, that is the symbol of life for Egypt. And that is what sort of uh, brought life into the, the queen's womb. And you can see this extraordinary character on your right. This is the goddess. And can you see her face? Is that, is that a beautiful face? You'd, um, and that would uh, uh, be on the, the front of Vogue or OK magazine, or does it look somewhat odd? Hopefully you can see that it is odd because she has the face of a frog. And in fact, her name is Heket, which is frog, and she's believed uh, uh, to be in the... Uh, um, come in the appearance of frog and she when she's described in this myth about Hatshepsut she is in the appearance or has the face of a frog and if you go to that temple that I was uh, uh, waving in front of earlier you will find uh, this artistic relief on the walls and you'll find this picture of this goddess this Heket this goddess frog and uh, the Egyptians thought they would pray to her and she would uh, 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 she would bring life and fertility. And so the Egyptians thought they had a handle on these things. They thought they had a handle on what it meant 
to have power over uh, reproducing, power over uh, life and death. And Hekut was the, uh, the centre of that. And we're about to find out that the Egyptians didn't know all, perhaps they thought they did, about frogs and life. If you've got a Bible, please turn to it. Um, it's Exodus chapter 7. And it says this in verse 25. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. What was the Nile turned into? Blood. Blood. Excellent. Glad some of you were listening last week. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. Some of us are like, plague of frogs? That doesn't sound so bad. How hard can it be dealing with a couple of frogs? The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and into your bedroom and onto your bed. Mark that. Into the houses of your officials and on the people and into the ovens and kneading troughs. My wife's quite... Uh, clean and the idea of frogs in the oven I think uh, is probably a no-no so the frogs will come up then the Lord said to Moses tell Aaron stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt so Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up everyone say frogs came up, frogs came up. so the frogs came up and they covered the land but the magicians did the same do you, do you remember last week the magicians did the same and just made more blood well sure enough the Egyptians come and instead of solving things or coming against God all they can do is replicate what it is and so the magicians did the same thing and made more frogs what a blessing these magicians are with their secret arts and so they made more frogs come up on the land of Egypt and Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And you're like, oh, finally, we've got there. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honour of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and the people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said, and Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and all your people, and will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord. There's a debate whether he even bothered listening and whether he just went and prayed anyway. He couldn't be bothered to wait till tomorrow. He wanted to see God's power now. And so Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he'd brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses and in the courtyards and in the fields. And they were piled into heaps. And I really like this. Just in case anyone thinks the, the Bible's nice and cuddly. They, the frogs were piled into heaps. And the land stunk of them. Imagine the smell of piles of rotting frog corpses. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. 
Before we go to more exalted thoughts, I wanted us to consider the frog. I wanted us to focus our minds on this beastie. We may often be unfamiliar with ancient Egypt, the idea of Hatshepsut, um, queen of the Nile, or uh, um, goddesses, gods waving sort of sticks under queen's noses. It may all seem very foreign and far away, but most of us in this room should be able to get to grips with this humble beast of the frog. If uh, you were with us over the summer, we got to enjoy together um, the camp over in the scout uh, huts up the road, and we had our little church lazy weekend. And wonderfully for this sermon, uh, we found a frog. It may be a toad, I don't know the difference, but we will say for the uh, uh, argument's sake that this is a frog. And um, it excited much comment. Everyone was quite fascinated to see this beast. Uh, when I picked it up, the boys were quite freaked out, and then immediately they were drawn to it and want to uh, touch it and poke it. Um, if you're a small boy, life is one constant, accelerating moment of stimulation. And they often can't even remember what they did at school, let alone last week. So I asked my boys if they remembered the uh, uh, frog at the camp. And they both remembered it very vividly. And I asked them uh, to describe it and they went on long monologues about their experiences of this frog. Uh, Job said it was slimy and green and he said it was a bit sticky so um, that surprised him and Miles said it was weird and bumpy but they both uh, liked discovering a frog um, and uh, they would certainly uh, like to discover more however Miles had this to say which has penetrating spiritual insight for us this morning he wouldn't like one for a pet and he'd definitely never stroke one uh, so Miles uh, is quite fascinated by them, but he certainly wouldn't want to get uh, too familiar with these things. Frogs are uh, interesting, and you sort of want to have a look at one, and, and uh, some of us may be brave enough to hold them. But there is very clear reasons why there are not legions of domesticated frogs across the world. Uh, they're just not something that humanity has got particularly interested in taming. Um, there are particular cultures out there that eat them, um, and uh, uh, so you can look up frog farms, and uh, I was quite fascinated to see how they did that. Um, but they're, they're not sort of uh, uh, soft and cuddly uh, beasts that you want around. And the text this morning says that these sticky, slimy, rogue beasts that you wouldn't want as a pet, and you certainly don't want to stroke, they become widespread across Egypt. And uh, I don't know whether you noticed, but most poignantly, they don't just spread through Egypt, but they touch Pharaoh personally. It seems that the Nile thing didn't do what this frog plague did do. And what was that? I'm going to read you uh, another book that you probably haven't got a reference on. So this is Stories of Hidden London. 
And I'm probably reading a bit more than I need to, but I love the language. Engines roar and pop, and I watch the Arab supercars of Mayfair circle the darkness in the middle of Berkeley Square. The silvery commotion swirls, and the rows of neat black railings sculptured into little spears glint steadfastly. They are dripping with rain, light licked by the headlight headlamps as they ring the obscured lawns and fine park benches, tightly locked away for the night. But the garden, the trees and the sculptures are all now lost inside a swallowing black gloom. The space-age vehicles are heavy breathing at the crossing as I rush under the thick warm summer rain. They roar as the lights turn green and the plane trees rustle gently in the shower. This is the square where Winston Churchill grew up and this is the sound of the season. The sound of the summer months when the richest Arabs who now own these musty townhouses of baronets come to London for their fun. They ship over their wives, they ship over their families, and they ship over their cars to bolt and screech around the fairground swirl of Mayfair, where they know they will be seen by the sheikhs. And so we go from that place of opulence and richness to something a lot more private. This princess who's been sent over by her dad. She's not allowed boyfriends. She's not allowed boys in the house. She's not allowed to go drinking with her friends. She's not allowed into London. The princess is supposed to sit here in this plush, fluffy bedroom, in this huge Rocco mansion in Mayfair with the Moroccan driver, the English driver and all the Filipinos until the Sheikh phones her up announcing that her future husband will soon be on his way to meet her from Terminal 5. And we have in this picture this princess, this lady uh, that is uh, uh, wealthy beyond most of our dreams. She's safe and sound in a bedroom. This is her sphere of influence. This is all she sees. She is kept there in a place of privacy, in a place of security. It is there where uh, her father can know where she is at all times. It is a prison in some respects. And this plague of frog touches on these thoughts because these frogs don't just come out the Nile, don't just come out the ponds and canals, they don't just come into the fields but God says specifically, these frogs will come in. They will come into the palaces. They will come into the royal spaces. But more than that, they will come into the kitchens. But more than that, they will come into the bedrooms. And more than that, they will come into the beds. This place of security, this place of solitude, this place where you think you are safe from everything and everyone else. And it is this that seems to have caused Pharaoh to cry out. The Nile and everything around it could turn to blood and he could be resilient to God's touch on his life. The frogs could spread throughout Egypt and he could be resilient to God's touch on his life. But when the frogs come into his bed, he suddenly feels vulnerable and exposed. Suddenly all his defenses, all his mechanisms to keep things outside 
suddenly are destroyed. And it is this that he calls him to cry out to Mero, to, pray, to uh, cry out to Moses to pray for him. And this always has got me to think about our own safe spaces. Each of us have them in our lives. Each of us have areas in our life that we guard and so often that we shut God out of. I wonder what ours is this morning. I did have a list, but I didn't want to uh, feed you like a baby this morning and go, oh, well, these are the things that you are probably locking God out of. And this morning I want the Holy Spirit to touch you and say, you know what, you have not let me in on this safe space, on this area of your life that you have restricted access to, this area of your life that is private, that if somebody else were to intrude, that you would kick up a fuss. And God says, I want to get into that place. I want to touch it. I want to transform it. I want to do something marvellous with it. So what do we jealously protect from God's intrusion? What do we jealously protect from any influence from our faith? What do we jealously protect from Christian scrutiny? You know, we would never tell anyone about. And God says this morning, that is where I want to come in. I don't want to just come in the fields and valleys of your life. I want to come into that place that you protect with your life, that no one perhaps knows about. That is your safe space. That is the place where you go and retreat to, to cope. And God says, I don't want you to hide there anymore. I want to have access. But the problem is when we are given that invitation, we go, well, we don't know what that will happen. If I let that particular behaviour or lifestyle choice or attitude go, what will happen to me? If I let myself vulnerable and expose myself to you, God, what's going to happen to me? Is life going to get boring? Are we going to get lonely? Are we going to get fearful? Are we not going to be able to cope? And the Bible has, as always, the most beautiful words to speak to us as we worry about what it looks like. If you've got a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Actually, we'll go a bit earlier. Hebrews chapter 4, and it says this. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So we're not talking about your social action. We're not talking about you lifting your arms in meetings. We're not talking about how, many, uh, how much money you tithe. We are talking about that inner life. The life that only you know about. 
the internal monologue, even now that you are having with yourself. And it says God's word has something to say about that. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. You don't have a private bedroom. You don't have a safe space. God sees everything and he wants you to let him in. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And we say, God, I'd love to let you in. But if I don't have this, I don't know what it'll, my life will turn out. Will I be bored? Will I be helpless? Will I end up in places that I don't want to be? You know, this thing that I hold on to, it, it helps me survive. And God says, my word will get in. And then it goes on. And these should be some reassuring words, because all of us have got private spaces that we have not let God into. And it says there, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weakness, but we have been one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Okay, so we have someone that perhaps is a little more sympathetic than the preachers sometimes suggest. And he goes on. Let us then approach God's throne of, everyone say, grace. Throne of grace, not of condemnation, not of finger pointing, not of insult and degradation, not of embarrassment, but his throne of grace. And we can do it with confidence so that we can receive mercy. Everyone say mercy. mercy. So we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Our Heavenly Father says, all our private spaces will be laid bare. Every little nook and cranny of your mind that you retreat to and God is not in, that will be exposed in the fullness of time. And the writer of the Hebrew says, let God in now. Let him in while Jesus' name is on your lips. And what will that mean? Well, it won't mean disgrace. It won't mean ridicule. You won't be paraded through the streets of Crawley because you are unable to do things without a crutch one way or another. You won't be exposed to everyone else. God's throne is one of grace. And when you open up that space, that private space where uh, you are broken and wretched, where you are relying on things that you know have no place in the life of a Christian, when you are saying things to yourself that has no place for someone that follows Jesus, you will be met with a sympathetic ear. Jesus listens and goes, I know. You are not the only one to have suffered this thing. 
You are not the only one to have felt that you could not cope. You are not supposed to be the tough guy in this scenario. And then he comes in with grace, and not just grace, but help. And he will move you on. You may be fearful of the consequences. You may be worried how it all turn out. And God says to you, but Jesus knows what you've gone through. And he has got this grace to give you. And he will come alongside and help you. This is the very name of the Holy Spirit given by John in John's Gospel. The helper, the comforter. And when we allow him to come into our private spaces, the spaces that we would never dare confess at home group, that you would never dare speak out loud uh, in a prayer meeting, in the very spaces that perhaps you would not even record in a diary, God will come close and bring grace and help. And you will find a peace and contentment that you can't find anywhere else. So, Pharaoh is kind of undone. These frogs, these animals have invaded the very place that he thought a fortress. They're in his bed. Can you imagine sleeping with frogs? It can't be a nice thing. And Pharaoh was not dead chuffed at this prospect. And he drives him crazy. And he goes, he goes to these immigrants, these pathetic, powerless Israelites who he's got nothing but scorn for, whose God must be weak and pitiful to allow them to come into slavery. He cries out to them and goes, pray for me, Moses. I need some help. This is not where I want to be. And Moses goes, yep, yeah, I'll do that. Moses doesn't go, well, I'll pray and fast and we'll see what happens. You know, don't get, um, I can't guarantee anything, Pharaoh. Moses go, yep, I'll pray and they'll go. Because God's plan and purpose is something that Moses has seen. Moses is on the inside track and he knows that he can call out to God and something miraculous and dramatic will happen. And sure enough, Moses calls out to God and immediately God responds theatrically. And instead of the frogs disappearing or going back to where they came from, they all suddenly just die where they are, which is pretty gruesome. They're stopped in the tracks. This plague is sort of supernaturally halted in its advance. I wonder what you take away from that moment. Life can be really relentless, especially with Christmas coming up. And uh, you may think, I've not helped by listing a trillion different events that you feel, may feel slightly obliged to at least think about going to. Or having a good excuse why you can't go. Um, that's often what I see at church events. You know, I've got to come up with an excuse why I can't go to that, so I just don't fancy it. Um, and... Life can be this string and relentless uh, 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 string of, uh, um, of demands on our time that we can forget critical aspects of our faith. And this morning, I think, just simply, that we'd be reminded of the power of prayer. 
Prayer can be a conversation with God. Prayer can be a way to feel peaceful inside. Prayer can be a way for mental mental wellness to reassert itself. I am not knocking those aspects of prayer. But that is not the prayer that we find here. Moses doesn't want to feel better about himself. Moses isn't after uh, a uh, reassertion of his ego. He doesn't want uh, um, to be able to sleep at night. He needs the plague to stop. And the prayer of Moses brings about the direct execution of probably millions and millions of frogs right there in this tracks. And we find here a prayer, not just of a nice tete-a-tete with the Almighty, but something that brings about the power of God. And this story has the very Lord of an empire cry out to a believer saying, pray for me. I have got no power left. I am undone. I have frogs in my bed. What am I going to do? And Moses says, and I will pray. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to the last reading of today, James chapter 5. Some of you need to be reminded of this this morning. James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? I won't make you put up your hands. Any of you in trouble? Any of you fretting or worrying? Any of you got things that are going to happen tomorrow that you're worried about how they're going to turn out? Any of you got bigger things in your mind? I was talking to someone uh, this week and out of the blue, they said, I've got skin cancer. They they did not expect it and suddenly it knocked them off their feet. Any of you in trouble? What do you do? It says, let them pray. Everyone say pray. Pray. Is any happy? Any of you happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Not make the person feel better about their sickness. Not them help them come to terms with the palliative care they'll need on their, on their pathway into death. This would be an easier thing for me to say you know pray and you'll feel better about the boils on your skin and the indigestion in your core but James says the brother of Jesus it will make them well and the Lord will raise them up and then it says this rather interesting thing if they have sinned they will be forgiven and what are you supposed to do? Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah, just in case you think James has got in mind 
you know, healings of rashes and headaches and that sort of thing. James, instead of just going uh, on the same track, just suddenly ramps up the ante. He suddenly switches the volume to 11 and he says this in verse 17, Elijah was a human being, just like you and me, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. What? I wonder if you've ever prayed that. And I'm not talking about for our Saturday morning football, Isaac. I'm talking about that sort of seismic national event. Don't let it rain, Lord. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And it seems to have been part of a component of the judging of a king who'd stepped out of line. And then in verse 18, and again he prayed, and what happened? This drought that had gone on for years, the heavens gave rain and the earth produced crops. How often when crisis comes, when it seems to take over, you know, where things go wrong at work or your house feels like it's falling down or relationships deteriorate. How often do we revert to activities that show that we've got no faith at all? We fret and we worry and it gnaws us inside. Or, and this is an equal and opposite error, if we're not fretting and worrying, we roll up our sleeves and think we are going to fix the issue with our own two bare hands. Um, looking at Google or YouTube for some helpful hints. When sickness comes, we grin and bear it. You know, I'll just get through this. Or we rush down the Bubush Medical Centre and ask for a prescription one way or another. These are the way the faithless uh, resolve their issues. No recourse to God, no recourse to prayer, no recourse to a spiritual activity at all. But James says, yeah, you love Jesus, so you get a benefit that others don't look to. Both Moses and Elijah call out to us this morning and say, remember prayer. When things are going badly, remember prayer. When you are in trouble, remember prayer. If you are sick, remember prayer. If you've got a plague of frogs, remember prayer. If you need it not to rain or to rain, remember prayer. Before we get carried away, either by naming and claiming uh, snow immediately, because the kids would love that. God, if we could have some snow right now, that would be great. Or uh, um, something else. James reminds us something that I spoke about earlier. He says, remember your private spaces. Remember your heart. Remember the sins that you nurture inside, that you don't let me into. Remember your habits that are unhelpful. Remember the things that you go to when you are struggling. 
Remember the language you use about other people. Remember the way you behave towards others. Remember how you use your money and your time. Open these up to God before you expect healing and powerful prayer. James doesn't expect prayer to be something that anyone can wield uh, regardless of their own walk with God. James says your interior life, your spiritual life, will have some connection with your prayer. If prayer is constantly a futile exercise, then James would come to you and say, well, how's that interior life of yours? How are you doing? How's your spiritual health? Is your relationship with God really good? Or have you got this private space that you won't let him into? Have you got these excuses, which means that God is uh, um, restricted in your life? Everyone wants the power of prayer in their lives, but some of us aren't prepared to pay the cost that that needs, and that is to let God into every aspect of our lives. But if we let him in, as we let Jesus in and his righteousness fills us, as we put down the unhelpful thought patterns, as we stop doing the stuff that we know doesn't lead to heaven. James says you can expect a vibrant prayer life. You can expect rain to come and go at your cry to God. You can expect healings to come and go at the laying on of hands. Throughout scripture, we have demonstrations that prayer works and does incredible things. It heals the sick, stops plagues in their tracks, and brings refreshing rain on dry and thirsty land. And the invitation is to everyone to participate. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, this plague of frogs can seem a little innocuous, but Lord God, we see the hatred of Pharaoh at the frogs getting into his private space. And Lord God, I pray that each of us would be honest with you. That, Lord God, we would be good at full disclosure. That we would not pretend a sin isn't a sin. That we wouldn't lock God out of areas of our life that doesn't need the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, help us be vulnerable, totally vulnerable to you and, dare I say it, to the whole community. And, Lord God, I pray that as we let you in, that we would know the sympathetic, merciful, gracious Jesus that jumps out from the scriptures and that so many of us already know so well. And Lord God, I pray, as we are honest with you, as the grace does an incredible work in our lives, that we 
would pray that we would have Moses confidence in praying for big things that we would have Moses's confidence in seeing miracles worked that we would see the power of God manifest in the lives of those around us Heavenly Father I pray all these things in Jesus name Amen